how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome to Making an Impression today actor, comedian, and of course, master impressionist. It's Jim Meskimen. How are you? I'm very well, Simon, and I'm delighted to be on your show. You're joining us from LA today. That's right. How are things? Because obviously this awful virus affects us all. How's it been for you as a human being, as a family man, and also as a performer? Yes, I'm a family man. I, I tell you, it's, uh, it's discouraging. It's, it's shocking. And uh, I alternately make my peace with it, and then I get all upset about it again. To me, it's like the only way I can get a grip around it is because none of nobody I've ever talked to, no matter how old they are, says, oh, yes, well, we had that. Nobody's experienced something quite like this with the kind of breadth of, of influence that the whole thing has had. But to me, it's like outside of the explosions and the shootings and so forth, this is kind of like being in a world war. Everything is focused toward one very difficult to resolve conflict or series of conflicts and everyone's attention and efforts are geared towards coping with that in one way or another. So that's how I think about it. But we're physically very comfortable. We have a lovely house in the suburbs. Uh, we have a lovely garden that we've put way too much time into now to make it pleasant. And it's great, you know, <laughs> and uh, my daughter is uh, also a, a a voice actress and narrator, Taylor is her name. And so she and I trade off using our studio booth to narrate stories. And I've kept working to some degree, but of course my larger goals of being a, an on-camera film and television actor have, have pretty much you know, been bottomed out for five, six months. Sadly, it's a, a common tale and everyone I've spoken to over the course of this podcast, which started kind of at the beginning of uh, lockdown here, which was in March, uh, has been in the same position. Some people have been fortunate to carry on working. I know I've done some some voiceover work, commercial voiceover work, but compared to where we would expect to be, it's uh, it's pretty miserable. But let's try to move beyond that today, at least. Yeah, I mean, you have to. That's the thing is you have to keep creative. And one thing I feel like is my greatest asset, if I have one, is that I have a a willingness and a desire always to keep creating and to make my own project. So I never really totally 100% depend on things coming from outside anyway, auditions and jobs and stuff like that. I'm like, that's great when they happen. But I've been a freelancer now for nearly 40 years. I know what I have to do to get things going again. Now, you come from a showbiz family. The people who don't know Jim, uh, his mum is the absolutely brilliant actress, Marion Ross. Now, people of a certain vintage will remember a magnificent sitcom called Happy Days, which ran, I think, from 74 to 84. That's right. Very good. And Marion Ross played Marion Cunningham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the way you pronounce Cunningham. Cunningham. Well, Ron Howard would say, I'm, I'm Richie Cunningham. There's no H in Cunningham. Come on. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like Birmingham, you know. Yeah, Birmingham, yeah. So you were brought up in an environment. Did that, you know, show this, did that enable you, do you think? Because I, I ask this because I come from a family of where there's no showbiz background whatsoever. Hmm. It only occurred to me that I could perform, you know, it, it seemed out of reach 
And then at the age of 34, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. A lot of the people I've spoken to, uh, Josh Berry, who I met last week, had came from the same sort of background. There was no showbiz going on in the family, and he it just seemed too far away, despite having this marvelous talent. And more by luck than judgment, he, he found his way in. Yeah. You, it must have been very different. Yeah, it, it's a good question, uh, Simon. It's interesting because I, I also, you know, I've known all kinds of different actors and some that, like you, did, came from somewhere where showbiz was like, what? You know, people didn't, did they make a living at this? You know, the parents don't know. And I know a lot of people like that that grew up in maybe Ohio or, or Illinois, somewhere out there in the middle of America where there was essentially no, certainly no television industry. And of course, I grew up with kids whose fathers were producers and writers and stars and all that. And I saw that I was a kind of this mid range, had a mid range kind of experience in that my mother was a working actress in the same way that I'm a working actor for a long time. Uh, she was a guest star on the shows of the seventies, the sixties and the seventies. She was a, a contract player to Paramount when she, in the 1950s, but never a big star, never a huge uh, earner, but made her living as an actress always and supported the family that way. Uh, she became then slowly in the way that that shows used to develop uh, slowly, slowly, slowly became a, a member of a hit series. And then uh, just by luck of the draw or whatever, or the grace of God became an icon that people still remember today, even though the last time she was on Happy Days was what, 50, 60 years ago, a long time ago. So I knew all those different things. Now, I got quite confused about my own intentions uh, towards being an actor. I felt in some way, well, when I look back on it, I think that the lucky bit was that I saw what the life was actually like. I saw that, well, you audition and you drop everything and drive downtown and do this audition. Uh, you, while you're washing the dishes, you work on your part and you know you quickly iron something and rush out the door and get down there. So I saw that part of it, okay. Then I saw, uh, oh, you get a call back. Oh, and that's a that's a good thing, and that's cause for celebration, but it still doesn't mean anything. And you got to go and do that good job that you did again. you got to do that again. And then, oh, you got a pilot. Great. What does that mean? Well, it may not mean anything. <laughs> it may mean that you got a pilot and you work a day, and then maybe, and in the case of Happy Days, and I didn't even know all this was going on, I found out years and years later, that Happy Days languished on the shelf as a pilot for over a year, maybe closer to two years. Yeah, the story is quite interesting, and I, I'm not equipped to tell it fully, but Gary Marshall, who was the creator-producer, wrote in his very fine book, Wake Me When It's Funny, which I recommend to anybody who's interested in Happy Days and show business in general. He wrote that, um, yeah, they shot this pilot, and then Paramount didn't buy it, and, and they put it on the shelf. And then George Lucas was interested in finding a lead for his movie, American Graffiti, and he thought, well, maybe Ron Howard... And the casting person said, yeah, maybe Ron Howard. And, and so George Lucas asked somebody at Paramount, do you have any footage of Ron Howard in a kind of a 50s uh, environment? And they went, well, actually, we, we do. And they sent that over. Ron Howard gets, gets the part. And American Graffiti becomes a huge hit. Then Michael Eisner, who was the head of Paramount at that time, went, wait a minute. <laughs> Don't we have this pilot <laughs> So it was this really interesting turn of events. Everything's swirling around the vortex of Ron Howard. It's interesting how these things are often, often by happenstance. They just, you know, there you are, something that might have continued to languish and, and eventually die and some, something sparked it in a way. 
That's the normal. That's the normal way of it. Am I right? Seinfeld was, you know, not highly thought of at the beginning, and they sort of, uh, right. we'll give you six shows and you know, see what happens. And there was no great enthusiasm for it, and it took a while for it to make its way into the consciousness of, well, f- subsequently the public, but initially the the, the people that you know, the power brokers, the people who who mattered. So, so they were a, a young kid, I guess. And learning how to do voices. Well, it was kind of you know I didn't I didn't go at go at it very uh, directly, Simon. I, I you know I'm kind of like you. I came to the game a bit late, even though I knew it existed. But I didn't have any big goals and dreams of being an impressionist and going to Vegas or in this country that the the end result of being an impressionist was I don't know. You go to Vegas and you get on the Johnny Carson show, some chat show, and uh, uh, that didn't seem like a a career to me and I didn't have any big designs on doing it at the, when I was young, I really wanted to be a cartoonist. Uh, I'm a visual artist and that's where I really had my, my sights drawn if I had it on anything. And I worked every day on that. Were you at school? Was this the thing you were doing? You know, people would gather around you and say, Jim, come on, <laughs> give us a Pacino. Give us a, I don't know. Could be going back a bit. Give us a Fonzie, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. earlier. Yeah. Well, when happy, yeah, when happy days started up, definitely. I, I started to, to feel confident that way. But as a young boy, because happy day started, I was pretty much a teenager. Mm. Uh, but when I was a young kid, I no, I wasn't gregarious that way at all. And most of my chums, my, my schoolhood schoolboy friends, were much more gregarious than I was and very clever and funny. And I wanted to be more like them, you know, but um, you know, my mom, uh, we mentioned she's an actress. She's also very gifted at voices. uh, And whereas she's not a mimic per se, she's, she's very good at uh, conveying uh, personality and emotion and uh, also accents. Mm -hmm. And I got very interested in accents. And for example, we had a, a, an English uh, nanny when I was growing up for a short while named Connie Godby here. I don't know where she was from, but she sounded to me a lot like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah. But my mother would call my attention to to accents and people's personalities, and we would play a little game of imitating them and stuff. And so I think the important thing about that for me, Simon, was that I saw that it was not only okay to imitate people, but it was kind of fun yeah. and that you could be creative that way. And that, I think, is, opens a door because... There is this other aspect of it, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, whereas where I'm imitating somebody is disparaging. It's, um, it makes them feel a little weird, yeah. you know, and there's a fine line there, actually. So to have that sort of that bit of freedom, I, I think was very, very helpful. What would be, uh, going back a little bit, then your earliest recollection of a celebrity voice? What was your first stab at that someone well, famous? I've asked this, been asked this question a lot, and I, I think the answer is still what I've been saying. <laughs> I'm just trying to correct it. But no, I think it's The Wizard of Oz. I think it's The Cowardly Lion and uh, characters from that movie, because I do remember seeing that when I was probably three. Yeah. And being terrified by the monkeys, you know, the flying monkeys. And, but charmed, charmed, charmed by, by Bert Law, who's the old vaudevillian Bert Law. I our king of the forest. All that schmaltzy stuff and it is so charming. Going forward then, so you, you talk about impressions in an interesting way. There's, there's something that you could do, but not necessarily the thing that you expected to do as, as a mainstream yeah. pursuit. I remember going back to, you know, when I was a kid, we would occasionally get, see Rich Little. He would turn yeah. up on a chat show in, in England. You know, we only had 
two channels or maybe three channels at the time. <laughs> and I was really spellbound by Rich Little because he was doing a lot of those voices, you know, oh, you know, James Stewart and, oh, you know, whatever. Humphrey, I can't remember how to do Humphrey. But Humphrey Bogart, you got to remember to keep your lower, your upper lip as close to the teeth as possible. That's it. Get things out this sweetheart. Exactly, sweetheart. But he did all those those uh, American actor impressions, and, and I just thought, wow, this is this is amazing stuff. Was Rich Little uh, any kind of influence on you? Did he make you feel? Because also, I think Frank Gorshin was another guy who used to do. Fantastic, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, those kinds of characters. And Richard Burton. He did a really great Richard Burton. Richard Burton. So were these the guys that inspired you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, like you, you know, if I saw them on television, everything had to shut down. And, and in those days, they appeared very infrequently, at least in hours when I was able to watch television. But when they came on, it was like being visited by gods. And it wasn't, though, like, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. It was like, isn't this freaking amazing? Yeah. And I just couldn't tear myself away from it. And I've, luckily, there's a ton of Rich Little's early stuff on YouTube, and you can just go down that rabbit hole and be very pleasantly entertained for a long, long time. I finally met him a couple of years ago, and I, I sought him out and, and met him. And uh, he's also a visual artist, by the way. And so I, I gave him a drawing that I'd done of him. But yeah, he was in a very unique position in terms of the, the history of entertainment, the stars that were uh, big stars then and influential global stars at that time, John Wayne, and like you said, James Stewart and Henry Fonda and Walter Brennan and all, all these American actors that had been in Westerns for 20 or 30 years and everybody knew them so well. And he did them very well and also had met the, a lot of them. And so you'd see it's common to see him on a television show with the person he's imitating. And that's uh, freaky, of course, for the, the audience and, and entertaining as hell. But it's a great uh, advantage for the impressionist to actually come into contact with the entire being rather than just the image of a sample. That's really interesting because I've, uh, it's one of the things I've spoken to a number of impressionists about on the pod, this idea of actually doing your impression to the person you're impersonating, you know, um, and uh, to me, that's incredibly daunting. I did it probably yeah. a couple of times. Is it something you've done? To my shame, I have, but I, I, I have a personal policy not to do it Yeah, because I, uh, I'm aware that it's a very, uh, it's most likely going to be an unpleasant experience for the, for the recipient. I always figure, you know, that the, the person who does that person best is that person. Yeah, they're, they're very good at it. Plus they sound to themselves differently than anybody else doing them does because our voices sound to us we are hearing it through the channel of our body which nobody else is everybody else is hearing it through the air which already degrades it mm. so anytime you do a celebrity as well as you could do it uh to them you you will wind up showing them a bad copy of who they are and they're going to take it the way that they're going to take it the more gracious of them will go that's really that's wonderful you're amazing <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I had a, a just a run-in with a guy called Alan Hansen, who won't be familiar to you, I'm guessing. He's a he was a footballer and a, and subsequently a very famous sports pundit. And um, I was on a radio show, and he was on a on a line into the show, and the, the host said, "You know, Simon does a really good impression of you." So he went, "Oh, go on then." So so I went, "Oh, you know, it's really good." Oh, whatever, whatever I did, and he went, "Well, it's not bad. It's not good." <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. I thought, yeah, you're right. It isn't. It's it's just not bad. So it does bring me on to this question of, you know, how we judge our own voices because 
impossible to be objective about our own voices. Do you always hear Jim underneath any impression? Or are there impressions where you think, oh gosh, you know, I've nailed that so well, I, I almost wouldn't know it's me? That's a good question. I I have to kind of talk about purpose a little bit because, as you know, making impressions is a kind of a game that an impressionist plays with himself and to some degree with other impressionists, right? You're trying to, ultimately, you're trying to match as good as you can so that it's impossible to tell the difference. That's that's the highest goal you can make, you know, like, oh, I didn't know it was him or I didn't know it was you. And you're like, yes, that's so exciting. It's a silly little game, right? My larger goals as a performer are to create an impact on the audience. I want to create in my live show or whatever I'm doing uh, as an entertainer. I want to I want to make them feel better. I want them to make to make them happy and distracted and, and have a lovely time. Entertainment. So I don't sweat too much on precision and fooling myself or losing my own voice. I don't sweat that too much because what I'm trying to do is 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 actually actually not that hard. It's at least not for me. It's it's trying to at least suggest uh, that character in a way that the audience goes, oh, he's doing Arnold. I understand it's funny because, uh, you know, Arnold would never be there and saying that kind of thing. And so I've gotten my humorous effect across. I don't need the audience to go, whoa, what's just happened? Mm -hmm. I'm hearing a foreign voice coming out of it. How is that man doing that? You know. Now, when I do other kinds of work, as I'm sure it's been some of your guests do uh, uh, work for film and television, where you're trying to match something exactly as possible because they can't get that actor back to do that line, or he's dead, or <laughs> or they're in a hurry. Then, of course, it's like okay, well, then all my attention goes to the mechanical aspects of how much air, what timbre, uh, what pitch, uh, what speed, what rhythm, all those things to create that perfect as possible illusion. Mm. But when I'm an entertainer, perfection is not a big part of my concern. When you're live then, you're doing a show, you're yeah. clearly what we're, we're comedians in that situation, aren't we? We're, we're comedians who try to emulate voices of, of famous people, maybe put them into odd situations. And as you say, you know, here's, here's an impression of, uh, you know, John Malkovich and he's eating a sandwich, you know, the kind of thing you, you don't expect to see. You don't expect to, um, you don't want to go through an entire meal and make a meal of it, so to speak. <laughs> I love that languid sound that you get with Malkovich. Do you think then that when you're performing live, what you're really doing is caricatures? Because as you said, you use the word suggest, and I think that's key. You're suggesting the character, and you're putting them into a routine, into some kind of scenario that generates the laugh. The voice alone is you'll get the recognition laugh, but beyond that, you have to do something with it. And so the more cartoony it is, actually the more effective it can be. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, everybody's got a different approach. You know, I, I know uh, there's a great uh, American impressionist stand-up comedian named Frank Caliendo, who, if you don't know him, he's just spectacular and a lovely, lovely guy. And he comes definitely from that, that viewpoint of, let's put these people into comedic situations and it has an aspect of stand-up comedy more than theater per se. Yeah. And I admire it uh, and I'm amazed by it. And he's lightning fast. And what he does, he constructs a bunch of characters and kind of introduces you to this palette of people that he's working with John Madden and George W. Bush and uh, different people. And then he just goes to them at various times throughout his set and sees how they, how they comment. And you're so 
hardwired into understanding, oh, I know what he's doing. Oh, that character. It's like watching a, a Friends and you know how Ross is going to react every time. We want to hear what Ross has to say about this. We want to hear what Chandler has to say and Monica and so forth. So that's a particular way of doing it. It's not my, it's not my method, actually. Americans, I don't know if it's true in England, but Americans saying the following, the following sentence sound very pretentious. I come from theater. And uh, <laughs> I guess it doesn't sound so pretentious in England. In America, if you say you come from theater, you're being really, you know, hoity-toity. But my background is, for better or for worse, I didn't do a ton of theater, but that's what I'm trained in. Yeah. Improv theater, regular theater. Uh, my, my mother was before, at the same time, really, she was doing television. She was always doing theater. Uh, my father was a great Shakespeare aficionado and poetry and stuff like that. So although I admire stand-up comedy, I recognize that it's a path I just didn't take. It is its own specific, very arduous, very sophisticated, really, path. And I, I didn't want to stay up that late and be in comedy clubs when I was in New York in my 20s. So I went into the improv theater and, and did plays and did shows and stuff like that. I don't like there to be waiters running around while I'm performing. I like everyone to be seated and looking at the stage. I want the sound to be good, that kind of stuff. I'm very, very picky that way. So, so my ask, so just to, just to wrap it up a little bit, I'm sorry, to, to try to answer your question. My, my viewpoint then is not uh, geared too much towards caricature, what I would call caricature, because I'm, what I'm trying to do is be that person. And that is my whole impetus. And so when I work on a character, I am approaching it like an actor and I'm trying to be that person. And if I can get the sound right or close, then that's helpful. If I can get the body right, that's helpful. If I can get the viewpoint right, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And these other mechanical factors are, are all well and good, and they add and augment and support. But the viewpoint is, for me, the senior element. You talk interestingly about that in, uh, I think, probably your first video, uh, How to Do Impressions, where you say that you try to kind of inhabit the, the thought processes, the attitude of the person before you even get yourself involved in the intricacies and the nuances of a voice. Uh, and you actually take the time to just lose yourself in the character, don't you, while you're, yeah. as you're demonstrating that. But when you do get into the voice, where do you start? What's the first thing you're looking for? I mean, if you, you do a wonderful Colin Firth. Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, what were you looking for when you s started with Colin Firth, and, and how did that come out? Uh, well, I think in the case of Colin Firth, there's just a very similar sort of timbre that um, already exists, and so I'm just... Um, utilizing it, I suppose, putting it into action. And, you know, it was validated several times. I've been, I've been doing little furthy, uh, <laughs> furthy ADR for movies and trailers that he's been in. And usually when he's in a big movie, at some point or another, I get a call, hey, you know, because trailers for movies, you call them trailers, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, trailers for movies, it, that seems like it's ripe for a, a different uh, vocabulary word, but uh, they use they have to sometimes shorten a piece of exposition to fit it into the trailer. And rather than get Colin Firth over to say, you know, the, the enemy battalion's just on the ridge and you know, we've got to get the man over the cliff. Like, okay. We'll just say they're nearby, you know? Okay, good. They're not going to get him to say that. So they'll call me so that when something's been validated by that, by, you know, yeah. By Sam Mendes, for example, then, then you feel like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm the go-to guy for Colin Firth. But in the beginning, I guess it's just a self-awareness. I know my voice. I know his voice. I can see how in just in a kind of a lucky bit of chance, 
our where where our voice lies, you know, auricularly is um, there's a kind of a, a pitch thing that you seem to be pretty close pitch right, wise, right? And then I can you know sort of massage it if I, I want to. And then of course he does different things with his voice, and so I try to mimic, uh, for example, in the King's Speech, how he was even more hesitant than, than usual. It's great. I mean, that's a fantastic impression. And we're born on the same day, which is kind of funny. Not the same, not the same year, but we have the same birthday, which I, I think is always a little... No wonder you've got him no off. No wonder. No wonder. Uh, that's the secret. Be born on the, first, on the day of the man you're mocking. <laughs> I'm just trying to... I was born on the same day as a, a boxer called Frank Bruno. Uh, yeah, and you do Bruno, don't you? Well, you're not. I mean, Harry, you're not. No one cares anymore. Then let's take a voice that's outside your natural pitch thing because pitch is a fascinating area for yeah. me because I, my voice is is pretty deep uh, and it's got deeper as i've got older mm-hmm. which means i you know if i want to do morgan freeman i can access that you know, blah, 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 pretty easily but then the, the higher stuff is a bit more difficult for well me. and a lot of people if i may interrupt a lot of people assume or or, or associate morgan freeman's voice with a with a deep morgan freeman voice but in fact, if you listen to him in interviews, uh, he's actually got a pretty, he can be pretty high. And it's still Morgan Freeman, which is, uh, which is, raises the point of like a person's voice, even a celebrity, or you can see it very easily online. These people, their voices change over time, just as yours and mine have. And uh, that's why the viewpoint is the essential thing, because the viewpoint of the person generally doesn't change in as much as the mechanics or the physicality of the person. I think the the voice I was doing and failing at just now was the, you know, his, uh, you know, Shawshank, uh, Andy Dufresne and all that kind of stuff. That's right. And as you say, when he's conversational, it's a different, it's a different sound. Yeah. Like in Driving Miss Daisy, she is a great scene in Driving Miss Daisy where Jessica Tandy is, com- <laughs> was this very rich Jewish woman in the South. And she's saying, we had to, you know, we didn't have a lot of things we had to make do. And he says, well, you're doing all right now. But that's the thing is that all voices, you know, they have many stripes, many colors. And so as an impressionist, you, the tendency is to try and find the thing that this, how you hear it and to then you're persuading the audience that that is the accurate representation of the voice. So what happens when you take a voice on that is outside your natural pitch? So I'd, I'm trying to think of one, perhaps uh, Woody Allen or uh, Robin Williams. Would that be... Oh no, no! In fact, I do Robin Williams for the Disney people quite often. He's right in my he's right in my wheelhouse. There's a lot of people in my wheelhouse. Actually, I've got to get my wheelhouse cleaned out. But, uh, well, I would say usually when you're going really high, like like Tom Cruise is one actor who I respect a lot and love a lot, and has a very high voice actually. And uh, on the on the other end, uh, Sam Elliott, whose voice I have done occasionally, has a real real deep voice, and so. As you know, you got to just get in there close to the mic and hope it uh, hope it gets across. You know, not too croaky. I can hear when I, you know, my agents send me stuff. Can you do this guy? Can you do this guy? And I can hear. I can tell almost immediately. Well, that's going to be a strain. If you're looking for an exact match, I, I'm not your guy because of the equipment I have. I know I have this kind of instrument. I don't have a bassoon. Yeah. I don't have a piccolo. I got whatever this thing is. You know, tenor sax or whatever. 
When you hear a voice, then you have an instinctive connection to you. Is there a, yeah. a moment when you think, do you know what? I, I know that's in my range. I, I can hear it. I can feel it. I don't know. Do you do uh, Jeff Goldblum? Is that one of uh, your. Uh, I don't know. That's a good example. Uh, I, I do. I definitely do Jeff Goldblum. I, I do other people doing Jeff Goldblum because I, I, I'm a total audience member. When other comedians do Jeff Goldblum, there's a guy named who you should talk to named Piat Michael. Piat is an American. He lives here as a young man. He's just uh, sensational. And he does pretty great Jeff Goldblum. And it's, I think even Jeff Goldblum would appreciate it. Now, when I first uh, heard uh, George W. Bush came to prominence, I don't know if you remember this, but it was uh, back in the turn of the of the light years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, at that point, I, I, when I heard him, I went, I think I, I think I've got I got an edge here because I think he's in my range, very similar bit of equipment. And then my father's from Texas and I've spent a lot of time in Texas, probably more time than George W. Bush has spent in Texas. No, that's not true. But uh, I thought, well, that's, I think I've got an edge, you know, into that. And indeed I was able to develop it. And it took a while though, because this was before the days of YouTube. So I couldn't really immerse myself as much as I'd like to. But once I had, I could, then I realized, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm right in there. And I did tons of George W. Bush stuff, which was a lot of fun. I had a guy on, I don't know if you know, John Colshaw is one of mm -hmm. our really premier impressionists here. And he was, he does a, a wonderful George Bush. And he was telling me that he kind of compresses the sound, squashes it down somewhere in his throat. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a good, that's a good way to, to expressify that. Colshaw's got it. He's, he's hit the nail on the on the worm. <laughs> and, and mangling the English language, of course, is Duriga. That's great. Yeah. I like your uh, impressions of, you know, I was going to say English people, but they're not all English. But you do a lovely Anthony Hopkins. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. But I have a great respect for Anthony Hopkins. And, um, you know, but he's got that Welsh thing, which I don't fully appreciate, but I'm trying. I need to go to Wales and uh, experience it <laughs> myself. He's also a painter, uh, as am I. And so uh, I think, uh, but if you scratch a, a few of your, uh, your guests, you'll find that they're artists or musicians as well. There's something about the musicality and also coloration and subtlety that has to, it's all part of the, the mix. I mean, I think music has certainly been a regular theme during the course of the, yeah. the podcast. Lots of people have musicality and also hear voices in a musical way. And those, those, little, those little notes, picking up on those and, and turning those into voices. McKellen, you do a lovely McKellen. Oh, I'm very chuffed to hear you say it. Thank you. It's very kind of you. I saw Ian McKellen years ago. He came to Los Angeles to do a production of his doing a one-man show of uh, acting Shakespeare. And my mother and I went, and, uh, you know, we were, we were impressed on the one hand with his virtuosity, but on the other hand, we were very impressed by his gifts of self-promotion. And... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I love, it's fun. It's, it's like a great reward for me to portray some old grand English stage actor. <laughs> just just the, the freedom to do that is like, okay. But there used to be a time, I think, when uh, this is tarring with a huge brush, but the Americans had a, quite a tin ear when it came to the English accent. They just yeah. couldn't seem to, to hit it. And then suddenly along came, I don't know, Spinal Tap. Right, right. These guys were knocking out English accents. Yeah, flawless. Those and they're great musicians, to your point. You talk about pitch. What about process? So do you 
take a voice. I mean, again, let's take an example of like perhaps talk me through uh, Tommy Lee Jones. You do a lovely Tommy Lee Jones. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering when you were going to get to that. Take me through your process of Tommy Lee Jones. How did you find that and how did you reproduce it? Well, it's funny, Simon, as, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, it, it all starts with affinity for the person. <laughs> and I, since the first time I saw Tommy Lee Jones on the screen, I was just kind of gobsmacked at how, what an appealing persona he has. And like all impressionists, I sort of collect those appealing personas and squirrel them away a little bit and uh, hold on to them and take them out every now and then and, and say, well, you know, I'm old enough to do that one now. <laughs> or I've seen Tommy Lee Jones enough. I know where it is. And then, then I just start playing around in, in, in my normal day of walking around and talking to myself. I, I realize, well, I can, that's, that's sort of similar. And then, uh, you know, what, what's, what, what is it about his attitude? Uh, what is it about the way he talks to people, the way he gets communication out? Always seems to be very, very uh, uh, concerned with doing something other than what he's doing at the moment and unimpressed with the question that was just, just asked him and uh, really trying to just get on with it and get over with the interview and get back to whatever it was he was doing beforehand. You've never heard anybody talk like that. So it's just it's just so, so much fun to do. Uh, so my process is... Um, it's funny, Simon. It's it's not very physical. It's more uh, my creative impetus. You know, I, I like with Morgan Freeman in the states. Anyway, I was I flatter myself that I was one of the first impressionists to present Morgan Freeman on the David Letterman show uh, as a voiceover for a gag they were doing. It must have been in the, in the late nineties. And there was just a moment when I heard Morgan Freeman say something in a trailer. For the seven deadly, the seven that movie, seven the seven deadly sins. Yeah, seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah, it was a sequel to, to six, and he says something in the trailer. He goes, "There are seven deadly sins," and I remember hearing that and going, "Ah, hmm, oh, I can do that." There are seven deadly sins. Oh, I could sound sort of like, like that character, and I just I stowed it away. I no, there was no demand. Nobody were, was doing Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman was not the narrator du jour that he became. Or, you know, we didn't recognize him for his terrific uh, narration skills or iconic voice. And I just sort of had it. So, and I, did I work on it? I, you know, when I got the job, yeah, then I started really studying him. But I had a certainty and a knowingness that that's something I can do. Listening to your Morgan Freeman there, you you have a kind of a, you're almost folding your throat over the top of the sound almost a croak well i'm, I'm creating a chamber and I'm, I'm closing off my nose a little bit and i'm opening up the back of the throat and i don't know i mean you'd have to take an x-ray simon to see what i'm doing and even then it might be disgusting but you are quite forensically analyzing your technique uh, with that voice do you find that voices tend to fall into specific areas i was talking to a guy called Josh Berry last week who got John McEnroe from doing Kermit the Frog because of a bit of a croaky thing going on there. And he was able to somehow transfer that skill across to another voice. Do you do that? Do you, do you have categories? Yeah. Yeah. There would be like stops on an instrument. I imagine, you know, you just kind of go, Oh yeah, yeah. I can play up there. I can, uh, mm you know, create that. Yeah. You combine things. You can sometimes go, okay, well, this guy's Joe Pesci. Okay. So he's down here and you know, you, you kind of raise the pitch up a little bit you make him a little hollow sounded, but if it's an English guy, then you could change him like this. 
and it wouldn't sound like Joe Pesci at all anymore, would it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you 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 can transfer those the, the little the little nuances, the little skills that you pick up along the way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You're familiar enough. You, it comes with familiarity with your voice and and all the impressionists you you've talked to. Uh, Alistair McGowan, I, I was watching your interview with him. He's he's wonderful. Also, yeah. also a theatrical guy. And uh, so they they are all tremendously familiar with their the possibilities of their voice and the limitations. They know what they can hit. They know what they can't. And then they can play this game of creating hybrids and playing around and combining things. And that's a lot of fun. And it's a bit of a shortcut. But that's all familiarity, I think. It comes with practice. It's really the, the listen, 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 watch, 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 watch. And often the physicality of somebody, you have, you've, you've talked already about, you know, moving your lip into a particular position. I know you also talk about this in your, uh, on your uh, How to Do Impressions. You talk about Tom Hanks, for example, who's got a voice that's, that's quite difficult to, to pin down, but you found uh, something that helped you. Take, take me through that. I just listened to Tom Hanks being interviewed the other night and, uh, uh, I don't fancy that I do a very good Tom Hanks, to be honest, but, but he's a guy who has a very particular, uh, particular set of, uh, his equipment is very particular and he's, uh, he's actually a, a voice guy himself. He can do a lot of different things with his voice. He could go up and down with it. I don't know really how to make a convincing Tom Hanks, but, uh, I probably used him as an example of someone who just has a very, I mean, if you look at Tom Hanks's head. It's a very interesting head. This is what you were talking about. This yeah. is the thing. And also, also his top lip, I think. Yeah, he's got a big upper lip, I think. And, and it's sort of, you know, it's just a, an interesting creation. The person that sounds the most like Tom Hanks and has done a lot of his recording is his brother, Jim. He's got a younger brother, Jim Hanks, who has a very similar kind of, uh, obviously, biology. So I, that's, that's as far as I can go with Tom, I'm afraid. I admire him tremendously. Let's have a chat about deepfake. Now, I've spoken about this earlier. Uh, I was talking to Rory Bremner about this. He's done a little bit of deepfake work, which is it's not something I've seen a lot of with amongst the British Impressionists. But I know that you do a lot of this. I'm, I've got Josh Robert Thompson on next week, and he did that fantastic roundtable thing where he, he was uh, Goldblum and I think George Lucas. Uh, you've got several videos where you where this is, this changing the face changing thing is so seamless so you're hitting the voice there's one actually where you've got a split screen where you can still see you doing the voice but the face subtly changes and the the, the features it's an interesting thing because i, I think it in, in enhances the voice because you automatically have another clue right but how does it all work? Because I'm fascinated by the whole Oh, well, the, the, the irony is that I was contacted by uh, one of your countrymen, a fellow named Sam. He goes by the name of Shamuk, and he's in Manchester. And he uh, wanted to do a project. And he was reaching out to impressionists. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do something. And he had made a little sample of one of my videos. And he said, right, here's what I can do. And, and I looked at it and I went, Jesus Christ, that's, that's freaky. We did a couple of things together. And then we, uh, I had written a poem called Pity the Poor Impressionist where I go from, I, from impressionist to impressionist, uh, to, uh, celebrity to celebrity, 18 or so celebrities. And I said, what about this? And he said, yeah, I'll give it a go. And it was very interesting. I, I don't understand the science behind it or the, the digital technique behind it, the F SFX, but it's remarkable. And in that particular video, it went viral and, and deservedly so because we hit upon a kind of a lucky thing with that, I think, which was that 
the resolution of the camera that I used to film the video, and I just filmed the video one take. I wanted to get one seamless take uh, without stops, and I sent it to Shamuk. And the equipment I had at the time was not tremendously high res, but it was fine for his purposes and fine for the the technique, the technology that he was using at the time. I think he's evolved it since then. But we started off with, by accident, I started off with characters that were physically not that different from how I appear. So the, the changes were very subtle so that it takes three or four of these changes for the audience to go, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Something's going on here. I'm being hoodwinked. Because yeah. most people, I've heard many, many comments, people saying, I just thought, how is he doing that with his face? <laughs> yeah, I'm not capable of broadening my nose and my, and my <laughs> I can't do that. But it was just subtle enough so that it dragged the viewer in and was a magic, like a magic trick. And then, of course, after about three or four in, when I started doing Robert De Niro, my nose lengthens and, uh, you know, the my hair drops off and different things happen. Then the audience is like, oh, no, we're witnessing something else. This is, this is just weird and scary, which was the, the sort of the general opinion of people. It's like, this is really weird, really scary. And I went, you're right. But it's better that we all know about it. There is that moment of realization, but it take, it does take a crack. He's really good with the, with the facial thing here. <laughs> it's really, really. It's, how do you do that? How do you doing that? It's it's tremendously effective. It'd be a lovely thing to take on stage. And just well, crazy. I imagine in the future that will be possible. You know, in some for some reason, but but I do see a lot of there's now there are cheaper apps that do it. I mean, Shamuk works very hard. I know, and we've done subsequent ones where he's like putting in just dozens of hours on making it just right and creating that illusion. But I think like any tool, like three D animation, like anything in the digital realm it's not going to live and die on that mask. It's going to live and die on what is the purpose and what's being said and how good is the vocal impression and how well do those elements integrate. And yeah. to the degree that they integrate well, it's miraculously fabulous. And if a guy's, if it's just a guy on his phone going, I'm Al Pacino and I've got this face on, it's like, okay, all right, have a good time. You know, it's... <laughs> Um, I did see Ross Markand. I know you you work with Ross, and he he did a bit on Jimmy Kimmel, I think. Yeah, and they were able to do that. Yeah, you know, as he was doing the the live bit, they were changing his face. I mean, it wasn't quite the, at the level of perfection as you would see on a, on a processed piece of film, but it's pretty well done. It brings me on to, to Ross Markin, because I know that you and he, you've, you've done some bits of bits and pieces of improv together. I've certainly seen some film on uh, YouTube, but you're also doing a TV show with him. Yeah, we did a series. We had a series called uh, Impress Me, and it started as a web series, and then it became a TV series over here, and it is currently available on Amazon Prime in this country, but I don't know that it's available in the UK. Yeah, I tried to get it and I couldn't. That's a great source of grief to me. Yeah, what's what's the uh, what's the uh, the show about? Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but it's a pretty freaking charming show about uh, a couple of impressionists played by myself and Mar uh, Ross Marquand. And it was very autobiographical. It was like two guys who do impressions very well, who are called upon to do impressions, uh, often for their job or for by their friends, but who really just want to be taken seriously as actors. And it had a world of people that the, the wonderful writer, director, Ben Shelton, who's done a ton of great stuff. He composed this world and it was 
created this kind of community of impressionists, which doesn't really exist in LA. We don't have a bunch of guys that hang out together or girls and share stories and are convivial together. We, <laughs> it would be nice. And in the run of this little TV series, we did. And, and it was delightful and we could all share things and, and pretend like we, you know, had, had long term relationships and things. And Christina Bianco, that's where I met Christina, who you've interviewed and, and yes. uh, began to enjoy her talents and uh, Dana DeLorenzo, who's a great, and there, I've met quite a few really good uh, female impressionists who are just marvelous. And, and this guy, Piot Michael, was a big part of it. So it was really about, it was a sitcom that had a lot of impressions in it, but it was mostly people talking kind of the way we are about impressions and the voice and the jobs and the sort of problems you get into. And uh, we imagined a lot of things that impressions might be used for that there really aren't in the industry, such as, you know, if uh, someone like Ian McKellen is not interested in talking to an interviewer or another performer, that he hires an impressionist to speak to him for him, or, or Patrick Stewart the same way. So we would mock up a Woody Allen, you know, who's tired of being interviewed. He doesn't have the time because he's off, you know, in Spain composing something. You know, he would hire someone like me to, to talk to NPR and the radio and and stuff like that. So it was super, super fun. And I hope that it'll be available to the whole world someday because it was super charming. Impressionists together is an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I used to be on a show called Dead Ringers. Yes. And one of the uh, elements of that show is that, you know, the producer will say, well, who can do, uh, who can do X and three hands go up. And then there's a, there's a, a voice off. And yeah. I heard you talking about this other day and it just sounds miserable. It was horrible. Uh, it was horrible for me because I'm thin-skinned and I found the whole thing uh, really awful. I didn't enjoy any part of that process. Impressionists are like any other people. You know, we're, we're competitive. We want to be the best. And doesn't matter really how much you sit back and say, oh, that's a really good impression of Boris Johnson. You do him. I, I say, no, I, I do it better. I, um, <laughs> well, I want to do him. And it never quite got to that kind of, catfight level when I was on the show. But I do know that it's it's a, a source of tension. So w when you were divvying up the impressions with Ross and the other people in your in your show, was that ever an issue? You know, uh, or was there ever a moment where you're both doing the same voice and suddenly you think, well, I'm doing it better or, oh, shit, he's doing it better. Uh, yeah, that that's, that's a really good question. I, it, ours was not, as I say, it was more about a story about the, the actors and the, uh, yeah. the wannabes than, uh, than a competition show. So it didn't really come up that much. Plus, we had already created, we we'd already sort of marked out our territory, I'll say. In my show, I had done certain voices that Ross, you know, didn't, you know, he let me have those and he did ones that I went, you know what, you're, you're terrific at those. And so we, we were, we were not in a situation where we couldn't afford to be gracious to one another and, and, yeah. and put our manners down for a second. We were like, you know, <laughs> you're Matthew McConaughey is just fantastic. Do that. And he would let me do Ian McKellen or whatever. And, uh, yeah, but his John Malkovich is just delicious. Uh, and it's, uh, what's that guy? Oh man. Uh, John C. Riley. His John C. Riley is terrific. You know, it's great. It's, it's great. And uh, so we let him do that. I think he's one of those impressionists who's very, very good at finding the nugget, the thing. Yeah. You know. The, so we talked about the nano impressions, where he was almost just doing a, a grunt, a sound, a word. I, I contend that that comes from uh, an actor's approach of capturing the viewpoint of the subject 
rather than the nuts and bolts of it. Now, he can control his voice and knows his own voice well enough and has a facile enough voice to be able to then mold that to the character. But at first, what he's doing is being that guy. And he's a great stage actor. He's a wonderful actor. I hope, another reason why I hope you see this show someday is that he's a terrific actor. And that's where we became friends because of that before we even became friends uh, as impressionists. It leads me on to another point. It was something that Rory Bremner was talking about in relation to Steve Coogan. Hmm. Now, Coogan is an absolute, he's a master impressionist. Master, yeah. Who doesn't think much of impressions. He tends to regard them as a lower art form. There is a sense, I think, and I certainly came across this when I was on the comedy circuit, that impressionists are tricksters you know they've got a they've got a it's like jugglers you know they have this little gift and it's not real comedy to which i you know was railed against that and said well actually no you know if we're making people laugh we're comedians have you ever because you, you're talking about your show and the idea that your actors who want to be taken seriously as actors and yet here you are with this gift for voices and you kind of <laughs> almost end up doing voices uh, if not just to amuse each other but also professionally so is there um a sense in, in your mind that somehow impressions, the art of impressionism is a lower art form? I don't think it's a lower art form. I think it's a tool. I think of it as a tool. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be like, uh, can you play the banjo? Can you do gymnastics? You know, then you could be very useful in the show. In Cirque du Soleil, for example, if you can ride a motorcycle inside, inside a giant steel sphere. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty useful. You know, that's a good tool. If you can then also sing opera. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. We're going to give you your own thing. So I wouldn't uh, be pejorative and, and say, well, this is a lower art form or anything like that. Lower art, higher, who cares? I, I don't think it's, there's any service to artists to make those kind of uh, disparaging distinctions. But to my mind, it's, it's a tool of expression of a person. And it like, when I was a little boy, I always wanted to be able to talk any way I wanted to talk. And maybe you felt the same way, you know, mm. if suddenly I wanted to be from some other country and say, look, first of all, I don't understand what this algebra is, why I have to learn this. I would feel like the cork has been popped and I get to say whatever I want to say. It's a tool. Is it, you know, a thing that I aspire to, to just do for its own sake? I still have to have a message. I have to have something that I'm trying to transmit. It would be like a, a, it's almost like a font that you use in your printer. You know, do I want this in Paladino or do I want this in, the, you know, Baskerville? It's, it's not the font. People don't pick up a book and go, I want to see a bunch of fonts. They go, what does this author have to say? <laughs> What's the story? What's going to transport me? It's not the serif. It's the tale. Yeah, well, I like I like that as a uh, metaphor. It's a, very interesting. We're coming towards the end of uh, this podcast. I've enjoyed it immensely, and there are there are two things I, I try and do at the end of, of each podcast. One is to have a a voice off with. Uh, usually, I do Alan Rickman. Um, yes, uh, Alan Rickman. yes, yes. <laughs> So we're both doing uh, Alan Rickman. Yes. yes it's, very, it's very difficult. You have to pull something inside your face all the way up to your brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I kind of just more or less mumble it out and hope for the best. He, he did a lovely line in uh, Love Actually where he, he got 
caught out for uh, you know cheating on his wife. And right. he goes, I've been a classic fool. So we've we've had a Rickman off, but if if there might be a voice that I can do that that you do undoubtedly better, and we could have a we could have a duel. I haven't worked on an impression for ten years, but I'm desperate to nail down. Goldblum, and I don't know how how confident you are with your own. Oh uh, well, I uh, you'll have to. Uh, well, there is a very diff- difficult difficult uh, 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 thing. You have to sort of uh, posit something and uh, put it out there, and then uh, uh, call attention to it uh, and <laughs> appreciate it, and then uh, and then move ahead to something else. Uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Oh yes, yes. He does that thing, doesn't he? Oh, it's just great, great. Oh, oh, oh well, I. Oh, oh, oh. And the hands are going everywhere. And where I'm, I'm about seventy-two percent of the way there. But what about teaching me a voice? This is the other thing I like to do because you've got a huge arsenal of voices to throw at me. Yeah. Well, is there one you'd like to to learn? There's one voice that I never. I suppose I never tried hard enough with, and that was. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Okay. So when I think of Nicholas Cage, I'm pushing everything right, right into the muzzle. Out of the muzzle. Yeah, yeah good, good. Oh, sounds good. great. Great, yeah. I got it. Yeah. Great. Great. And then you get explosive sometimes. I don't know. So that is, he's also he's got that kind of from nowhere bellow, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about, because Cage is one, but the other one I've never got anywhere near is Christopher Walken. Um, There was a, a, I had a guy on a tremendous impressionist was on called Stefano Paolini and he did a little man and I sort of got, oh, I heard that. I heard that. And then, and then I couldn't do it twice. I couldn't do the bloody thing twice. Give me a phrase that I can emulate. You need to go, Simon, to the source. (laughs) You need to go. Well, to the source. What I'm saying is, you got to go to the source of the, listen to to Christopher Walken in something like uh, "Catch Me If You Can." Well, I mean, famously, he goes up at the end. Famous things. Why? Something. You don't know, but it's mm. his particular choice. He's one of the more caricatured ones, but he, he has a, there's a subtlety to his voice, and you can hear him. I swear, when I hear him interviewed now, I hear him trying not to do that. Yes. <laughs> I think it's been pointed out to him, you know, by endless amounts of comedians going, Hey, go Christopher. How are you? You know, like, yeah. we've got a guy, I don't know if you know, Lewis McLeod, who's one of our top impressionists. And he does an impression of a radio presenter called Jeremy Vine, which is so brilliant that, you know, that now Jeremy Vine tweets, you know, you're doing me better than me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of what you get to. This has been fantastic fun. I've really enjoyed meeting you. I've enjoyed uh, getting a perspective which is slightly different, actually, to many of the other people I've met. I think your approach to a voice, your approach to impressions is uh, an individual take. Um, And what's next? So if in a a perfect world, uh, no COVID-19, where, you know, what would you be aiming to do? What's what's next on the agenda? Well, that's a great question. I you know I, I I was lined up to do some films and TV things, which have either gone away forever or are just postponed. But in my own realm, I've written a screenplay about an impressionist. It's kind of a drama, kind of a thriller. 
And uh, I, I would love to get that made. Are you starring? Yeah, yeah. This is for me to, to star in. And uh, hopefully I won't age out of it. So, and then I'm feeding my YouTube channel. And, and I'm also creating a curriculum for people who are interested in doing impressions. So that uh, yeah. they're adding to my, my video library. I do urge our listeners to get across your website because there's so much good stuff, so much good material on there, and also some lessons in how to nail down some impressions. And I think it's instructive because I don't think there is no single method. Uh, my own method is, you know, I mimic, I hear things, and I try and reproduce them. I tr- don't think too hard about how or why I can either do it or I can't. I mean, it's not quite as facile as that you come at it from a different angle you clearly have techniques processes and you're putting lots of things together and i think you convey that in your uh, videos and i think people get a, a great deal from that if, even if they don't want to become professional impressionists they might just want to just find out how to do a voice well uh, my youtube channel is is just if you look me up jim meskimen uh, or jim impressions uh, you can find it pretty easily and if there's a lot of stuff there to, to waste your time with. <laughs> well, as I, again, I urge our listeners to do that. But in the meantime, I'd just like to say to Jim Meskman, all the way from LA, thank you so much for being on Making an Impression. And uh, to our listeners, uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. You can subscribe to Making an Impression on all the major podcast platforms. And why not leave a review? Follow us on Twitter at Making an Impress One. We've got a Making an Impression Facebook page, and our website is www.makinganimpression.net. <laughs>